I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. I want to thank you for joining me today. Um, if you're listening in Washington, D.C. on WPFW, I hope that you support this station and make contributions to that station. We are listener-supported radio. You can support WPFW by going to 202-588-9739 or going online to wpfwdc.org slash donate and make your contribution. If you're catching the show on WBAI or if you're catching it on Facebook or any other means of uh, podcast or whatever, and you want to contribute to our host station in New York City, I ask that you go to their pledge line, which is 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org. And uh, either station, you can uh, make a one-time donation. You can uh, become a sustaining member. WBAI has a WBAI buddy program. Um, uh, like I said, you become a sustaining member by making a contribution monthly via your credit card or your checking account. And that could be five, 10, 15, $20 a month. Uh, probably less than you're paying for your movie subscriptions. And, uh, and in doing so, you support these fine radio stations that have uh, provided me with a platform to bring to you information that you are probably not getting anywhere else. And as a part of that, let me uh, introduce what I'm going to talk about today. Today, uh, this week marks the 130th anniversary of the U.S. coup against the Kingdom of Hawaii. Now, many of you may not view the, um, the takeover of Hawaii as a coup, but it, it, but it was. I mean, in fact, in, uh, the president, uh, President Grover Cleveland, launched an investigation and actually called it a war crime. In 1993, during the Clinton administration, there was a joint resolution of Congress apologizing, essentially, for the role the United States played in the takeover of the Hawaiian kingdom. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit. I'm also going to connect the threads of that event to, um, to, to Native issues that, uh, you know, that, that we face today and, and frank, frankly have faced in the past. So let me, let me kind of go through it a little bit. Uh, in 1893, January 17th of 1893, uh, the, a group of white men, and this would be seven uh, foreign residents of Hawaii, white Americans, and six, six white guys who were essentially listed or registered as subjects of the Kingdom of Hawaii. They consorted to form a group called the the uh, um, safety committee, the committee of safety, which would ultimately they would designate as the um, as the government of the uh, of Hawaii, and they would they would say they have essentially overtaken the kingdom of Hawaii, and it was now the Republic of Hawaii. Now they didn't act alone; they had support by the United States through the U.S. minister to Hawaii, uh, a gentleman by the name of John L. Stevens, who not only 
as a U.S. diplomat, but as somebody who had enough influence to use the naval vessel and the Marines and Navy personnel that were a part of the USS uh, Boston, which was um, anchored or at port in uh, at Pearl Harbor, used the used though the U.S. military to uh, to conspire with this group of thirteen white white men to essentially do this coup. Now, again, this is um, this is a, in 1893, January of 1893. This is only two years after the the massacre at Wounded Knee. So just to put things in perspective, you know, I talk a lot on the show about the necessity for context. And you can't talk about the military aggression in Hawaii without talking about that recent military aggression. And, and you know, many call the, the massacre at Wounded Knee the, the final um, battle or war or massacre of the United States. It isn't. I mean, because Native people would, be continue, would continue to be killed in places like Tulsa, and, or, or I'm sorry, the Osage, and, and, and so many other places. Um, and not just military, but, you know, private individuals, and, um, private militia groups, and that kind of stuff would continue to kill Native people uh, well past, uh, past 1890. But the, the world knew of the massacre at Wounded Knee. Hawaiian people knew of the massacre at Wounded Knee. So when this aggression, which was, again, conspired by, by treasonous subjects of Hawaii, who were, who were, who were not, not Hawaii, they, weren't, they were not Ganaka Maoli, they were not native Hawaiians. They were white men who had learned how to make millions by cultivating sugar and, and other, um, other products in Hawaii and, and sell, primarily sell to the United States. One of the, the guys who was a part of this committee of safety was, is a name whose a last name that you will be for, familiar with, the, uh, a gentleman by the name of uh, Sanford Dole, of, the, of Dole Pineapple, Dole Fruit. Yeah, that, that Dole. Uh, these guys conspired to do this so they could essentially force Hawaii to be annexed by the United States. That, that was the ultimate goal. They, they weren't trying to, you know, to take over a country uh, for independence reasons. In spite of the fact that these are, they, they use a, a ship named after Boston uh, and, the, and, the, and the Marines and such. But they would conspire with, the, again, this minister from the United States and the military to do what is considered a relatively bloodless coup against the, the Kingdom of Hawaii. And the queen, uh, Queen Liliuokalani, she did not want to see the bloodshed. She was very familiar with the uh, with the aggressive tactics of the United States. But I also want to put some other things into context. In 1893, prior to, the, to this coup, the Kingdom of Hawaii was recognized throughout the world as an independent nation, a sovereign independent nation. They had embassies and consulates all over the world, 90 of them all over the world, including both an embassy in Washington, D.C., and uh, Hawaiian consulates in, in all the major cities of, of the United States. But th these embassies and consulates would exist throughout Europe, uh, you know, th again, throughout the world. And 
so they were recognized. This was, this was a nation. This was a kingdom. Now, unlike many native territories, and including the ones that would be uh, massacred, uh, you know, the, the native people who would be massacred at Wounded Knee and, and so many other, you know, bloody conflicts with the United States, the native people of Hawaii had pretty much adopted certain European practices. They, again, they were established as a, as a kingdom, a monarch. They had a, a palace. They had, they had, you know, the, many of the accoutrements that you would expect in the very sophisticated um, uh, cities of, uh, you know, of Europe and the United States. So they were by no means a primitive people within the context of the European mindset or mindset or or view. They they had they were educated. They they again they had. A, a very European-like governmental structure. They, they had gone through some, some parliamentary changes and that kind of stuff in, in Hawaii. But the fact of the matter is, when the United States uh, conspired with this, with this group of wealthy white men in Hawaii, they did so with the backdrop of, of Hawaii being a recognized nation state by, throughout the world. And the world turned a blind eye. They, they, they did nothing. None of the, the, the European nations, certainly, um, you know, certainly the powers that be in the United States, although some of them did, but, but at the end of the day, the United States got its way. And these, uh, these 13 men who conspired to, to overtake the Kingdom of Hawaii, rename it the Republic of Hawaii, and then push for annexation. In a roundabout way, they got what they wanted. They didn't get an annexation, not a legal one anyway. But what they did get was um, through various administrations, you know, first with, with um, uh, Harrison, and then when Cleveland got, when Grover Cleveland was elected, he actually stood up to this whole notion. He, he rejected the notion of, of, a, of an annexation. He said the treaty that was delivered to the, to the United States by this, Republic of Hawaii was false. He knew there was already petitions throughout Hawaii, the, the Kuwait petitions and other petitions that the Hawaiian people said, no, we, we don't want this. This is, this is essentially a coup. And so Grover Cleveland, he acknowledged that and said, no, I, 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 he tossed out the, the, the so-called annexation treaty. But then he would be, um, he would be voted out of office and uh, William McKinley would, would push through um, not a legal annexation, one that would come from a treaty from, from a, a, a nation that wanted to be annexed, submitted to the United States, put through um, the, the Senate, which would, re would have required two-thirds of the Senate to approve um, this, this treaty, and then signed into law by the president. No, they didn't do that. They went through a joint resolution of Congress, which... Joint resolutions of Congress are not the same as passing a law necessarily. I mean, they're for like naming holidays and bridges and you know, parks and that kind of stuff. They are not considered, they don't have the full weight of the legislative process or the constitutional process to do things like an annexation. So, in fact, some of the very people who, uh, who voted in this joint resolution of, uh, of Congress said this is, this is, our way of legalizing an illegal transaction. And 
And this was investigated. Um, it was investigated and it was de determined that what was happening in Hawaii was essentially a war crime. And like I said, in 1993, during the Clinton administration, it, overwhelmingly through a joint resolution of Congress, there would be essentially an apology, um, a resolution acknowledging the essentially the crime. Now, now again, so what value does the joint resolution of Congress have? Well, although the, the one that would annex, quote unquote, annex Hawaii seemed to end up having the force of law, but the resolution that acknowledges that it was wrong and that it was a crime and that the, that the United States apologized for, for this crime, it would have no force of law. In fact, the Supreme Court would say, well, using this joint resolution of Congress from, uh, from 1993, um, uh, that has no force of law. I mean, that's flat out what they said. The U.S. Supreme Court said the resolution, apology resolution in 1993 would have no force of law. So in other words, Hawaiians couldn't use that in, in, in land claims uh, litigation and that kind of stuff. I mean, it, it, it's, it's absurd in many levels. But this is what happened 130 years ago. And this illegal coup that the United States was, was not only behind, because let's face it, these 13 white guys, they were, they were not acting independently. They were acting uh, as a strategy by the hawks in the United States to, to not only establish Hawaii as a military outpost. I mean, they already had... Uh, negotiated the um, a military presence at Pearl Harbor, not like you would know in, in the 1940s, but certainly they were already having a presence there in Hawaii. And there was a, a rather strong relationship between the United States and the Kingdom of Hawaii as far as trade goes. I mean, part of, the, of this, this effort to, to take over Hawaii was really pushed internally by, by the white folks in Hawaii because laws were changing, things like tariffs. I mean, they used to be able to sell sugar to the United States without a U.S. tariff on it. That changed, and now the only way they saw a way to maintain their riches and their affluence as white men who had already learned how to exploit the kingdom of Hawaii was to, was to push for this annexation so they, could no, they would no longer be considered a foreign nation selling uh, selling goods and products to uh, to the United States, so the, it was it was about money, wealthy men in Hawaii, wealthy men in the United States, but it was also about the military uh, interests and the the uh, the continued expansion of imperialism by the United States, one that would exhaust many of the territories on the continent by through very very aggressive and and, all, and heinous acts committed against Native people, but it wouldn't stop there. It would go into the Spanish-American War and Theodore Roosevelt and you know, into, you know, into, into farther, further expansion. And of course, in 1959, they, the United States would ignore how Hawaii became, quote-unquote, U.S. territory, and they would make it a, uh, make it a state. So that's how, that's the Hawaiian history. I mean, that's the Hawaiian history as it relates to the crimes committed by the United States. Now, I suspect there aren't a whole lot of programs on WPFW or WBAI talking about this again. And I've talked about this several times throughout the years. But, you know, on this date, I've got to. And, and it's relevant to 
a part of the thread that I want to follow through here. So Barack Obama is born in the United or in Hawaii. You know, that is his claim to U.S. citizenship is being born in, in Hawaii. And he has maintained, I don't know if he still has a residence in Hawaii, but he goes to Hawaii and, and has traveled to Hawaii extensively. During his administration, there was an effort by his administration to convert the native Hawaiian population into a quote-unquote Indian tribe, or perhaps several Indian tribes, because it would have been somewhere in the neighborhood of you know, 400,000 to a half a million native Hawaiians that would have gone through this, this fed wreck, as I call it. I'll, I, I call it fed wreck, spelled F-E-D-W-R-E-C-K, not fed wreck in terms of federal recognition, although that's what it's, that's what it's really geared towards. And this recognition would recognize Native Hawaiians as an Indian tribe, uh, a tribe that is subordinate to the United States. But, and the reason for part of this push was, look, there, there was acknowledgement that, that crimes were committed against the Kingdom of Hawaii. And that, the, the, that even with this so-called annexation, there were still many parts of Hawaii that were considered unceded lands. So how does that work when you have a... A, a territory the United States has essentially claimed and then assumed more of that territory through that claim and ultimately turns it into a state, where does that leave the native population that has resisted this from day one? Well, there were certain programs and there were housing programs and there was, you know, there was all of these debates over things like unceded lands. Well, how does that fit in with, with U.S. sovereignty? Well, it doesn't. And so when they did programs, both at the state and at the federal level for Native Hawaiians, there was always this threat that it would be challenged in U.S. courts that this was discrimination, that you could not have these programs that targeted one um, racial group in the United States. So one of the ways that, that the Obama administration says, well, if we make, it a, uh, make them a tribe, then we have certain protections for, for tribes. We, we have a Bureau of Indian Affairs, for instance, and, and it would, you know, we have an interior department that deals with the, uh, the, the issues related to, to these, this tribal designation. So part of the way that the Obama administration says, well, let us turn you into a tribe, and then we don't have to really recognize you as sovereign peoples. And we, we can continue down that same path of, uh, you know, of pretending we didn't illegally occupy and overthrow the, uh, the Hawaiian kingdom. And this was met with, with broad opposition. In fact, they, they hosted uh, a bunch of these meetings throughout the, uh, you know, throughout the islands. And the overwhelming sentiment expressed in all these hearings, and I watched some of them because they were online and, and I followed this. The overwhelming sentiment by the Ganakamali, by the Native Hawaiians was, you don't even send the Interior Department here. You send the State Department. We're fighting for our, our nationhood here. We aren't trying to become a tribe. And, and, and this whole thing pitched by the Obama administration was to streamline the process. We're going to make this easy for you. We're going to create a whole set of rules that allows Native Hawaiians to become tribes overnight. And we're, and we're going to protect you this way. And, you know, of course, the YB was saying... Oh, what are you talking about? Look how you've protected, uh, you've protected the native population on the continent, for, for crying out loud. I mean, they, they could not believe what they were, were, what they were hearing and what was being pitched.
And of course, there were senators, Hawaiian senators that were all for this. And there, you know, there were, you know, people in 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 on both parties, Democrats and Republicans, were all for this because this kind of solves it, it solves a problem. And so again, that problem being that they could not do programs for the native Hawaiian population as it existed without a real risk that it would be declared unconstitutional because you cannot do race-based programs necessarily. I mean, the, the affirmative action is still being, is being challenged today, but it goes farther than, than just affirmative action. So I got to bring it kind of full circle. So you have the Obama administration, and, and I don't know where the Biden administration has been on this, but you have the Obama administration that thought the solution to any constitutional breaches for having programs, you know, state or federal programs for Native Hawaiians would be solved by just making them, making them Indian tribes. That, that's what the whole effort was. And this was, you know, Senator Inouye, and, and this was, you know, you know other, other prominent uh, politicians who really pushed for this. Uh, and, but the Hawaiian population, the Native Hawaiian population, the Ganaka Maoli, they opposed it. Because they knew that this does not reinstate their sovereignty. You know, this, this idea of taking the word sovereignty and sticking the word tribal in front of it is essentially like saying, no, we're not, not sovereign. And, and that's been our experience. I mean, that's what, that's what we go through as Native populations throughout, you know, the continent. You know, both the U.S. and Canada, for that matter. Um, so that was the solution. But how secure is that solution? That brings me to to a case that I've talked about on previous shows, but, I, but I've got to revisit. And that's a case that is called the Brackeen case. Now, the Brackeen case is a white family who had already adopted a native child who was born to a mother who was in distress, somebody who had substance abuse issues and, and that kind of thing. Um, they had gone through the process of foster care, and they actually got approval from the Navajo Nation to adopt this child. But when the woman had another child through another, another father, uh, the Navajo Nation said, no, we're going to place that child with, with the Native family. And the Brackeens said, oh, hell no. We're going to fight you on that. And so what the Brackeens want to do was to challenge the constitutionality of a law called the Indian Child Welfare Act, ICWA for short. Now, ICWA was a law that was passed that essentially many believe helped uh, put an end to the residential school era. You know, of course, residential schools still exist. There's still five of them, I think. But, uh, but residential schools did not end with the passage of ICWA. It changed a lot. And ICWA was also passed to end what was, and on the Canadian side, they called it the 60s scoop, which was Native children being taken from their homes and placed in white fam with white families in, en masse. Well, the same thing was happening in the United States. And it wasn't just about Native children being, being adopted by rich, wealthy white people. This, this was the foster care system that was so abusive in the United States that it was almost tantamount to, to a, in a business. A family could say, well, I'm going to bring in eight or ten foster children and make money from the federal government over it. And, and I'll have the kids just do all my work. And... And it was very abusive. In fact, the, 
what they called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Maine was not necessarily addressing the residential school era, but it was addressing the foster care system and the abuses that Native children experienced through that foster care and the adoption system. But you, in the modern era, you've got Hollywood stars that want to go into impoverished territories and, and adopt these children and, you know, and then wear them on their shirt sleeves. Well, the same thing happens in the United States with, with, um, with Native children. I mean, some of these Native kids go into the foster care system and the adoption system, and it's very abusive. Some are, you know, used like little trophies. Oh, my, my, my cute little Indian baby. Well, that's what the Brackeens were, were, were doing here. And now the Brackeens had these real high-priced lawyers that were, who had earned their stripes in the oil industry. And, and that's relevant here. So the Brackeens are challenging ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act, on a couple of levels. One is they're saying that it's unconstitutional because ICWA is placing a racial designation um, uh, and, and having laws that are, that are specifically race-based. So on one hand, they're saying they're being discriminated against because they're white people and, they're, and, and they are not being allowed to adopt a Native child. That, that, so the white folks are being discriminated against. They also make the argument that the Native children are being discriminated against because they're being denied the, the right to, be, to live in affluence with white folks. So that's part of it. They're also making a, a constitutional challenge saying that ICWA, which, and let me, let me back that up a little bit. ICWA, this Indian Child Welfare Act, uh, was, did not take over the removal of children from um, unsafe homes and the placement of children into safe homes. It didn't do that. It, it produced what, what I would call federal guardrails for the existing state agencies that were the ones who were removing and placing ch children. Now, ICWA did not acknowledge us as Native people to say, oh, we had the right to place those children. It said that the placement had to have a Native preference. And we may have been involved in asserting what that Native preference would be, but it was still the state agencies that would remove a child and place a child with these federal guardrails. Well, that's what the Brackeens were challenging. This idea that the federal government was over, um, overreaching and taking away state powers, that this was a, a state's rights issue because the states were being denied the unfettered right to grab Native children and place them wherever they saw fit. And they could base it not on any cultural issues. That state, this argument was that the states could just make the determination based on money and other standards that would have nothing to do with culture on where a child should be placed. Which brings to the third argument that the Brackeen's, um, the Brackeen case brings up, which is this idea that we as Native people should be treated as anything different than just another racial designation of peoples, of U.S. citizens. That we were U.S. citizens of a specific uh, racial designation. Ignoring any other any other uh, cultural or uh, distinction associated with being Native people. So essentially, they're saying it should be against the law for Native people 
to have specific protections based on their autonomy and their distinction. Because there is no autonomy and distinction. You're just American citizens of, with, with a racial designation of American Indians. So all of that rhetoric tied to the Obama administration about being able to protect Hawaiian, Native Hawaiian programs by designating them tribes is being challenged by this case. So there's a thread that when you talk about the, 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 the coup against the Hawaiian people and the response over the years, everything from an, an apology resolution in, 18, or in 1993 during the Clinton administration to the efforts of the Obama administration to somehow, as they were claiming, elevate Native Hawaiians to a status of tribes, which is not an elevation, of, you know, by, uh, at least not by their own uh, you know, sensibilities and certainly not by ours. I mean, I don't, the idea of being elevated to the status of a tribe is not something that Native people even necessarily embrace. Although there are some that, that, that do pursue federal recognition, but most of the, of over 500, I think it's, I don't know if it's 570 or 470, I don't know how many federally recognized tribes there are. Most of the Native peoples that are, uh, that have, quote unquote, federal recognition, never asked for that recognition, at least not asked for it within the definition that the United States has for what a federally recognized tribe is, which is, again, a tribe, band, or nation of Indians subordinate to the laws of the United States. Most of us don't accept that. I mean, most of us still assert our autonomy, even those that, you know, that, that work hand in hand with the Interior Department on so many different levels. If you cut right to the chase and you ask a native person, are you a citizen of the Seneca Nation or a citizen of the United, of the United States? If they look at that as a choice between the two, they'll take their, their native citizenship um, hands down. But we've been lulled into the sense that we could be both. Because the bottom line is the United States doesn't recognize our citizenship as native peoples. They only recognize us as citizens of the United States. I mean, and this gets into the history of, of everything from, uh, from the 14th Amendment, which excluded Native people as part of that who is and isn't a United States citizen because we weren't under U.S. jurisdiction, including the Indian Citizenship Act of 1924, which tried to declare that we were all U.S. citizens even without our permission and without our request or consent. And right up through 1934 with the Indian Reorganization Act, which once again tried to de redefine us as, as tribes subordinate to the United States. We never accepted that. And in fact, the United States acknowledges that today because when certain Native peoples attempt to reacquire lost lands through what is considered the, the fee-to-trust process, the Interior Department says, well, if you are under U.S. jurisdiction, in 1934, you can't even participate in this. So we have to somehow backdate and prove that we had been subjugated by 1934 to reacquire lost lands, which is, which is absurd on, on so many different levels. But it's also an acknowledgement that the, by the United States that, that Native people, not all Native people, were part of the United States in 1934. 
in spite of the laws that they keep trying to pass, in spite of their jurisdictional reaches and, and all of these other things that they, that they try to do. And of course, many people in Hawaii, especially the, the, those who have really studied their history and our history, know that history and they know what the strategies have been, that have been used and deployed against them. So we have to talk about what the United States did to Hawaii. Because it, it almost, I could talk till I'm blue in the face about the crimes committed by the United States against Native people. The genocide, the, the enslavement, the, the, the removal uh, uh, of, our, of our peoples from our lands, the, the massacres, the intentional spread of disease, the turning the, uh, their blind eye as, uh, as um, settlers just wiped out populations of Native people. I mean, we're talking about, on the continent here, we're talking about a people who, whose population was diminished to the tune of somewhere between 95 and 98% that we were exterminated. I mean, it is somewhat of, a, of an incredible phenomenon that Native people exist today. Considering everything that that we that we've had to endure and persevere through at the hands of the United States and and its predecessors, I mean it's an incredible achievement that that I can be here today to even talk about Native sovereignty. I mean it's that's how um, you know how incredible I guess or or how how much against the odds uh, of you know of sustaining ourselves. Um, our history has presented itself. <clears throat> I mean, it's, it's an incredible story. But, you know, it doesn't matter how much I talk about that stuff, the United States still doesn't take any responsibility. Well, but I'll tell you, with Hawaii, there's a little bit of a different standard. Because unlike the, 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 the narrative that the, that the United States um, puts out there about Native people, like somehow it was just a natural thing. It was destiny. Native people, we were pr too primitive and we either had to be destroyed or wiped or, or incorporated. And they did both. They both tried to assimilate and, and tried to destroy us. And in fact, they tried to destroy us through assimilation, through the residential schools that existed for almost 200 years. And by the way, residential schools existed in Hawaii too. That was, this was a, a movement that uh, and a strategy that was deployed in Hawaii, in Alaska, of course, throughout Canada, and of course, in, in the United States, and, and, and South America, and Mexico, and Australia, and Africa, all over the place. But by the United States, it was deployed against Hawaiian people, Alaska Natives, uh, and, and against Native people throughout the, uh, the continent. So this strategy of committing genocide against is something that the United States still will not acknowledge or <clears throat> accept any restoration as, a, as some sort of form of reconciliation. When we talk about reconciliation, I don't know how you reconcile 200 years of genocide. I mean, unless you could say, okay, we, well, there was a time that we were, we were fine. Well, if you want to believe the, the Thanksgiving myth that somehow the settlers of, of, of Plymouth and the native people were just happy yeah, uh, you know, happy little Indians and happy little pilgrims. If you want to try to reconcile that period, well, let's understand that that period, the first Thanksgiving was was a slaughter of uh, of native people, uh, King Philip's wars. 
So there is no period of time that we can go back and say, well, this is when, when settlers and native people got along. I'm not saying that there weren't individuals who got along, but as, as a population, we were always in, in the throes of conflict with each other. So there's no reconciliation. There's no going back to a time. For us, the only time to go back to is before you showed up. And the same thing can be said for Hawaii. There's no reconciling because <clears throat> to the extent that the Hawaiian kingdom did have a system of sophisticated laws that even allowed non-native Hawaiians to become subjects of the Hawaiian kingdom, we see what that led to. I mean, there's an irony that you, when you listen to the, the, the political right, and then frankly, even the left, talks about the immigration problem the United States has. And, that, you know, and, the, and, the, and of course, the, this, this idea that white people feel like they're, they're being the replacement theory, right? That they're going to be replaced by, um, you know, by brown people. Well, most of the world is not white, at least not by you know, white in terms of the way the Republicans and the, and the conservatives on, uh, in the American system view white. I mean, the, most people aren't white. And there, there is going to come a time, based on current trends, that, that white folks will no longer be the majority of the population in the United States. Now, they'll still be very much in control, and they'll be the largest group because black people represent about 13%, native people represent less than one-tenth one of 1%. But some of those other brown populations, the um, Central Americans, South American, the, the Latina, Latinx um, population, that's a growing population. And, and of course, the, the mixing, of uh, the race mixing, will no longer leave white people as the exclusive majority of the United States. So is that replacement theory? No, that's, that's, that's just natural evolution. That's natural. What's unnatural is the idea that you believe that certain people are destined to go extinct, which is what is promoted about Americans, the U.S. history of the, uh, of the United States and, and native, native relations, that we were just part of a problem and that we were in the way of manifest destiny. This idea that the United States had a God-given right to expand. See, that argument doesn't hold as well when you talk about Hawaii. For one thing, Hawaii isn't part of the continent. It is, I mean, it's, it's a world away from the United States. And it was acknowledged and recognized throughout the world as a sovereign state. Many of the nations that the United States um, committed these atrocities against didn't have the same international recognition. I mean, look, many of us were recognized by nations like France and, and Great Britain and Spain, but we didn't have embassies in those countries. Hawaii did. The Kingdom of Hawaii had embassies and consulates throughout the world, and, and they were recognized as a sovereign nation. They, in fact, they were the only non-white or, or, or didn't have European origins. They, they were the first country to, to have this kind of day. I, and I think that even qualifies over some of the Asian populations that didn't, that didn't get this, the same recognition until they were colonized, that was. So this, is, this was the, the difference between the, the Kingdom of Hawaii. And it is so clear the crime that was committed I mean, it was well documented. It was investigated by 
again, by President Cleveland, uh, what had transpired. And it, so it's, it's, it's clear that the United States broke its own laws. It didn't follow its constitution in terms of annexation. It is very clear. So the fact that you have a, a Hawaiian kingdom sovereignty movement that is thriving today, and you know guys like Keanu Sai and uh, and uh, um, uh, Leon Sue and so many of these people, some that have, have been on this program, that are going throughout the world, attending you know UN conferences and 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 going to Switzerland and and going all over the world to make their case to be once again recognized as the Hawaiian Kingdom, they have a, a strong case to be made. And, uh, and I'm not saying that we as Native people don't, but their circumstances are a little different. And, and the clear violation of law, international law, and the time frame with, with which some of that violation took place is contemporary enough. Now, and I'm saying this, again, acknowledging that the coup against the Kingdom of Hawaii took place merely two years after the, the massacre of Wounded Knee. But there's still this like mentality, this European mentality that says that we were a primitive people that simply had to be overtaken by a, a, by a superior people. There was a campaign to try to minimize the Hawaiian people. There were terrible cartoons and, and representations about uh, of everybody from the Philippines, you know, and and Southeast Asia, but including Hawaii, to to make those people look like monkeys, and and that's what was published in the newspapers because it was a campaign to try to minimize the level of sophistication, sovereignty, and inherent rights that 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 people of brown skin could could even have. But I think this Brackeen case. And this is an important one because the bottom line is if a white family challenging the constitutionality of ICWA can, can be successful in doing so and, and do so by declaring that any benefits that are awarded or any special privileges or uh, awarded or recognized or acknowledged for Native people is unconstitutional because we are merely just a race of Americans, then that could have devastating effects to everything. You know, everything, every native territory. I mean, it could essentially make the, the Bureau of Indian Affairs unconstitutional. And, the, you know, I had Valerie Lambert on here a, a couple of weeks ago. It could essentially make the fact that the Bureau of Indian Affairs is popu populated by to the tune of 95% by Native people, they can say, no, you can't have racial preferences. You can't have Native preferences for these positions. And, and the idea that anybody would get a position based on, um, on th their Native identity, would be, that would also be deemed unconstitutional. We could challenge whether Deb Haaland has, should, be, should, should be able to serve as the Interior Secretary, especially if part of the argument for her serving in that, in that position is the fact that she's Native. Can be no Native preferences. And that's what the Brackeens are challenging. This isn't just about white people wanting to have their, you know, their, their, their native children to put on display. No. The fact that it's oil money that the backs this, uh, this law firm that's representing this family suggests that the protections 
of native territory is, is also a goal here. So you do away with the idea that native people uh, have a special place because of tribal sovereignty, and you undermine that with this case, now you start to say, well, should native territory should be protected? Look, and, and there are politicians today that are campaigning to eliminate the so-called reservation system. They, they don't want to acknowledge that we have that we own our land. And of course, many territories, the native people do not hold title to their lands. No, the federal government does. That's what this, when we talk about the fee to trust process, this is the idea that many of the lands, most of the lands occupied by native people are held in trust by the United States. I don't know about Navajo territory. I do know that here in what is considered New York, the Senecas, the Onondagas, the, uh, you know, many of us here, Mohawks, we hold the title to our lands. That, and we have absolute title to those lands. It's considered restricted fee title, that restriction only being that the only people that, that could um, take ownership of our lands would be the United States if, if we should decide to sell it. But we own the land outright. The Senecas hold title to their land. It's not held by the federal government for their use and enjoyment. But that's not the case with many other places. In, fa in fact, in, on the Canadian side, Almost all of the native lands are held by the crown for the use and enjoyment of, of native people. Legally, that, that's how they papered this thing, right? That's not how we view it. And I'm not saying native people throughout the United States view their land as held by the United States for them. But technically, that's how this thing has been papered. So if you can do away with our distinction by suggesting that any special privileges that we've that that we've been given by the federal government which is crap is unconstitutional well that means that our lands open up that this means what's what's left of uh, of the vast lands that we once held before the homestead act and so many other pieces of legislation that that allowed treaties all these things that allowed the federal government to take our lands this could be the final this could be the the final solution as they say this could be the final solution that the united states does away with by by deeming any tribal benefit or acknowledgement or recognition and any tribal sovereignty recognition as unconstitutional i mean does now is this unlikely Look, this is the most this is the most conservative court that that the United States has seen, possibly in its in, in its in its existence. So, could this conservative court not just do away with the you know further do away and eliminate affirmative action, but actually say Native people no longer deserve some unique acknowledgement or recognition as a distinct people? And this case centered around a wealthy white family wanting to adopt another native child could get this court to do that. Now, we're not going to lay down without a fight, just like the Hawaiian people are not laying down without a fight, regardless of how they've managed to manipulate their own laws to make what they do to us legal. 
We're not going to, we're not going to lay down for it. But it's important to acknowledge that what Native people experienced is what the Hawaiian people experienced. And, and even though we're almost, we're an ocean apart from Hawaii, they knew what we were going through and they know what we have, what we continue to go through. So I think it's really important to, to look at this history and there, there does have to be some reckoning to what the United States did to the kingdom of Hawaii. There does have to be some reckoning to what the United States has done to native peoples. And you know, for me, you, you've heard me say on the show several times that I think part of that reckoning for native people in the United States in, on the continent, and, and it could include Hawaii and, and Alaska as well, is this idea that there must be a reckoning um, to the, the policy of residential schools. And you cannot have a reckoning for the genocide that those schools represented if you don't acknowledge the losses that, that occurred during the, that period of time. Look, we can see what the United States did specifically to the nation, to the kingdom of Hawaii. And it was done through this massive fraud. But it's a little harder to, to piecemeal what the United States did to, to, to over 500, almost 600 or 1,000 distinct Native peoples. But they lumped us all together in this residential school thing. And they murdered our children. They allowed our children to die. Sometimes mortality rates as high as 50%. They did away with our lands. Once they took the children off our land, they actually uh, uh, you know, diminished the, our land holdings. They tried to push us off. They used these residential schools as part of that foster care system, placing our children with white families, when, not just when we aged out of these schools, but as a way to, to push our people more into this assimilation and indoctrination process. And of course, as residential schools began to wane, the, the foster care and the adoption system of taking Native children into white families to strip away our distinction, to kill the Indian, save the man, would continue through that adoption and foster care process. Something that ICWA was charged with trying to stop. But that's what's being challenged by this case. So you not only have a failure of the United States to reckon with things like the coup against the Hawaiian kingdom, or the genocide committed against the native population more generally. But you have the legal process with an extremely conservative court that now is, is, is essentially poised to wipe away everything that the United States has somewhat tentatively tried to acknowledge in terms of native distinction, autonomy, and sovereignty. No, it could be wiped away with one fell swoop. And that will be a major, major conflict. We're not talking about 10,000 people at Standing Rock here. We're talking about a population that is relatively small, but still very much engaged in our distinction and our autonomy. This could get really ugly. And I don't know if there's anything stopping the legal process, because the court is set. The case has been heard. It hasn't been ruled upon. I don't know if there's more hearings to come yet. And I don't know that the United States will ever fully acknowledge and reckon with the crimes that they've committed against Native peoples or the Hawaiian kingdom. 
And that's a problem. Because when you try to do these little stopgap measures, like Obama trying to turn Native Hawaiians into a tribe, well, we can see that wouldn't have had any effect. If, if we're at, at, in jeopardy right now uh, of that so-called tribal sovereignty, then clearly the, the Ganakamali made the right choice in rejecting this idea of becoming a tribe uh, during the Obama administration. Because it is still a subjugation. And ultimately, this kind of subjugation results in making us disappear as distinct people. Because there really is no, I mean, this is the part that many Americans wrestle with. Well, how do you have a nation within a nation? Or how do these native territories exist as distinct nations within the United States? Well, it's because the United States doesn't recognize us as distinct nations. Yeah, they recognize our reservation boundaries, but there are politicians, and they've been doing this for, for decades, lobbying to try to eliminate that designation of, of native territories. This is all part of a strategy and a multi-pronged strategy. The Brackeen case is just one example. And, but it might be that legal case, that, that Supreme Court ruling, that could have devastating consequences and could really hurl us into a, a significant period of conflict with the United States, the likes of which we, we may not have seen in, in, a, in 100 years. That's, that's the significance of what, we're, of what we're facing right now. So I think it's important that, that Americans understand this. I think it's important that Native people are going to understand this. I, I know the Hawaiian people have become very much aware of what they're what they're facing. And that's why this, this push that, the, that some of these incredible people from, from Hawaii have been, you know, been, been pushing for. I mean, again, Leon Su, um, um, Keanu Sai, um, you know, so many of these people who, who have been pushing this assertion of the, the sovereignty of the Hawaiian kingdom. I'm, I'm in awe of what they're doing because I also think that what they're doing impacts us. Just like what has been done to us has impacted them, whatever success they can have is something that I hope that we can, we can you know, uh, see some of that success. Unfortunately, there are people in Hawaii who undermine this effort. Unfortunately, there are, there are Native people in the United States that undermine the sovereignty movement. But I don't think that they're the vast majority. I think, I think most Native people, most Hawaiian people, most Ganaka Maoli, they want to fight to protect their land. And, and when I say fight to protect their land, I don't mean putting on a U.S. military uniform to do so. I mean taking on the U.S. military. So here's where we're at. But I think it's important that to both acknowledge the 130th anniversary of the U.S. coup against the Hawaiian kingdom and understanding how those threads connect to, to hearings that are, or to cases that are being heard by the Supreme Court today. That's what is so significant about where, about where we're at. So I want to thank you for listening to the program. I ask you that you support WBAI and WPFW by going to their pledge lines. Again, WBAI's pledge line is 212-209-2950, and WPFW's pledge line is 202-588-9739. I want to thank you for listening. I'm John Kane. See you next week. Yahweh.